we'll follow God's word wherever it leads us, right? <laughs> That's about the best I can say. We are not a people who will shrink back from our faith, are we? I've asked you that before in, in here. I've asked each and every one of you, are we going to shrink back in our faith? And we've always said a resounding no. Well, that's what we're going to be talking about today. Not only that, but good news as well. So I want you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 26 to 29, just to give you a little bit of a heads up, and later we'll stand and read those words. But for now, we'll do a little bit of review of the book of Hebrews. I think I counted up, we have done 22 sermons in the book of Hebrews so far. It's been a long journey so far. I, I hope that it's been a good one and been helpful to you in your walk with Christ and is effective in causing us all to persevere in our faith because the world needs to see Christians persevere in their faith, to know that God is real, to know that Jesus is real, that he actually did rise from the dead and he sits at the right hand of God interceding before us. If our message is going to have any validity at all, we must be a, a people who persevere in our faith. And so I agree with what the writer of the book of Hebrews says in our, our very last verse today. We are not of those who shrink back, but we are those who continue on in the faith. And so this all came about mainly the book of Hebrews because I wanted to talk about Jesus more. We've gone through several books. We've gone through a lot of books uh, written by Paul, uh, and those are excellent books. I love those books. But I don't want to just talk about Paul and what he thinks. I want to talk about Jesus. And that doesn't mean I don't think Paul is inspired. I love those books. All of God's scripture is inspired. But I wanted to talk about Jesus because I think if there's anything that will cause us to persevere, and for people to come to know Christ as if we talk about the great love that Jesus has for us and the grace and mercy that come to each and every one of us who trust in him through Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. I, I think that's the truth. And so I wanted to talk about Hebrews because it's all about Jesus being better, being superior. And you might ask, well, what is he better than? Well, he is better than everything. He must be the number one priority in our life. And all of our contentment must be found in him. Amen. And yes, we have times of leisure. We have sports. We have hobbies that we enjoy doing as well. But all of those, if we were honest with ourselves, come because of the grace and kindness of God in our life. And so I still affirm that Jesus is better than any of those. He's better than the prophets of old. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He's better than anything the world has to offer. He's better than the Levitical priesthood, which is a priesthood that existed during the time of Jesus. And it caused the priest to be able to intercede for the people. But we found out that the priests were not infallible. For one thing, they died. They couldn't carry on their ministry because they actually died. The other thing is they had sins of their own that had to be paid for. And so they could intercede partly for us, but not fully, not like Jesus could. Jesus is our great high priest. He is the one who perfectly fits that description and is the perfect intermediator, 
the mediator for us and God. And so we run to him as the anchor for our soul. It's Jesus who has, thrown, who has shown us the way that we are to live. And we need a high priest like him because he is one who meets our every need. He has secured for us an eternal redemption. Let me say that again. He secures for us an eternal redemption. Hebrews 10, 14 says, For a single sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice, he has perfected all, for all time those who are being sanctified. I love that verse. And if you have any inclination at all to memorize verses, I would say memorize that verse. Jesus, by his single offering, he's perfected all time those who are being sanctified. In other words, all of you who have placed your faith and trust in Christ are being sanctified. You're being conformed to the image of Christ. And because you are being conformed to the image of Christ, we can be sure that he has perfected you for all time. And that just simply means that before the Father, a believer in Christ is perfect and righteous and holy, even though we know we're not. We know that we never attain to that, right? We never attain to that perfection, except through the person of Jesus Christ. And when he intercedes for us, it's as though God, when he is looking at us, looks at Jesus Christ and he sees the righteousness of Christ. And he sees also all the good things that Jesus has done that are given to us. And so we are not only righteous in God's sight, but we, we deserve a reward. Not because of our works, right? Not because of our works, but because of Jesus and him living a perfect life for us and his reward is given to us. Jesus is superior in every way and that gives us great confidence to enter the holy place or to enter into a relationship with God. We have great confidence to do that. On the other hand, a superior Jesus demands a, a superior response to God's mercy and grace, right? So once we've been bestowed with this grace, our response is, is great thanksgiving and great acts of service for God. And so the writer of Hebrews last week, because of this, he said, let us draw near to God with full assurance. In other words, I believe as a Christian, we can know that we have eternal life. Amen. And this is one of the verse that, verses that helps me understand that. That if I am being sanctified, if God is at work in my life, and doing the work of sanctification, then I can know that he is in my life. The writer in Hebrews also said, let us hold fast the confession of our hope in Jesus. And I described last week about how hold fast means that that faith and repentance that we exhibited when we first came to know Christ is still evident in our life. We're not banking on a date 20 years ago of coming to know Christ. We're saying that a salvation that gives us eternal security is one that constantly is one that holds fast to the hope that we have in Jesus. Doesn't mean that we are perfect. Doesn't mean that we don't turn the wrong way sometimes. But it does mean that we always take that sin to Jesus and repent of it. The writer of Hebrews also said last week that we are to consider how to stir one another up. This is why church is so important, folks. 
We can't do this as individuals. We can't stir each other up as individuals. We do it as a church, and we do it best when we are in the presence of each other. Oh, we can do it through Facebook. We can send messages of encouragement, but it's very difficult sometimes to challenge someone on something uh, when you're not face-to-face. -face. And so God wisely, uh, the, the very word church in Greek, ecclesia, means an assembly. It means a gathering together. And so it's necessary for us to do that, to stir one another up. What are we to stir one another up? To love, to good works, and to attendance. We're to stir one another up to love, good works, and attendance. And so last week I made a plea that attendance is very important to our church, and it is. It's important to any church. It's when we are together that we are encouraged, and in lots of numbers we're encouraged, right? I mean, I am encouraged by looking out over this crowd and seeing everyone that is here today. It is a great blessing and encouragement to me, and I'm sure that it is to you. When there's even more people, it's more of an encouragement. I think that's just the way it works, and I think that's the way God designed it to work. And so that brings us up to Hebrews 10, 26 through 39. And let me warn you, this is a warning. It starts out with a warning. So we've seen several different warnings in the book of Hebrews. I think this is number five, if I'm not mistaken. It may be number five. But it starts out with a warning, but it then ends with great blessing and great affirmation of our faith. So let's go ahead and stand as we read Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 through 39. I do that just long enough so that you get comfortable and then you have to get back up again. <laughs> no, not really. But let's read this scripture. Very sobering scripture, but you'll see that it has a beginning, it has an ending. The beginning is a warning. The ending is an affirmation of uh, some, at least some of the Hebrews' faith in Christ. Starts out, it says, For if I go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. 
But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to read this scripture out loud. It's commanded in your word that we read scripture out loud together. And what great words these are. A great warning for us to begin with and a great affirmation of the Hebrews' faith at the end. And so we pray that you would help us to pay attention to this today, to glean and to gather any teachings that you want us to understand and, and to put them in a, a way in our heart that we might be conformed to the image of your son, Jesus Christ. We want to be that way so that we can be a light to the world around us, a beacon of hope to people who need encouragement, who need to hear that God loves them. Help us to be a people who does that and help us to have with wisdom understand this today and apply it to our life. And I ask all these things in Christ's name, amen. amen. Well, there's the old adage that says, do you want the good news first or the bad news? <laughs> Actually, this is all good news, but he starts out with what we might consider the bad news with a warning. It's once again, a warning of drifting away from the faith. We've heard him talk about this before. He's termed it neglecting the faith. He's termed it drifting away from the faith. And this is not something that we want to do or go for or go in this direction. We might ask the question, you know, who is, he, who is he writing to specifically this time? Is he writing to people who are genuinely saved and they can lose their salvation if they deliberately keep on sinning? That's not the answer. That's not what he's talking about. But I do believe that he's talking to Christians, and I do believe that he's talking to those who have yet made a decision for Christ. I think he's making it to people who have maybe professed Christ, but there's really no fruit in their life. But I think people will respond varying depending upon what position they are in. The writer's intent is that when a true Christian hears this, they will heed this warning. They will heed this warning. They need to hear, heed this warning because they are in danger of drifting away. You know, it's a, it's a funny thing about drifting away. When we read, read that way back in chapter, I think, two or three, chapter two, I think. The person who's drifting away doesn't realize they're drifting away a lot of times. They don't realize that they are drifting away. Just like the boat who's not uh, anchored in the harbor has a tendency to drift away and they don't know they're drifting away. And so sometimes, the Christian who is tending to drift away needs a very severe warning, and this is it. For if we go on sinning deliberately after having received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. The true Christian, when they hear this message, will flee from their sin, flee from their drifting away, and flee toward Christ. That's the response of a true Christian. The professing Christian is a Christian who has made some kind of confession of Christ, but it appears, and we're not to judge, only God can judge this, but it appears as though that they are not bearing fruit, that they're not living out 
the decision that they intended to make. And so they are like rocky soil. Remember the parable of the rocky soil, where the soil and uh, the seed is planted in this rocky soil and it has no root. And when the sun comes up, it dries away and it bears no fruit. A professing Christian is like that. Also, the parable of the soils is the seed that grows up around the thorns and the thistles and it grows up, it tries to grow up, but then it's choked off by those weeds and it never bears fruit. This warning is given to them that they might truly turn to Christ. And I don't know if there's anyone like that in here today or not. I hope that there's not. But if there is, this is your warning that you might truly turn toward Christ. Not only accept him as savior, but accept him with everything that you are, accept him for everything that he is, that he is Lord and has the right to be Lord of your life. An example of a true Christian, going back up there, would be Peter. Peter was tempted by Satan, denied Christ three times, but remember the prayer that Jesus had for him? He said, I have prayed for you. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And that's why Peter persevered in the faith. The professing Christian is like Judas. Judas walked with Christ. Judas saw all the teachings of Christ. He saw the miracles of Christ. But he was a thief, and he never truly believed in Jesus as the Messiah. He never truly believed. He never had eternal life. He didn't lose it. He never had it. This is like the professing, professing Christian. This warning that we're reading here says to that person, you need to truly receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. And then there's a third possibility that this is written to Jews who refuse to go forward in their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as the Messiah and as Lord and Savior. So remember, we're at a dividing point in time. The Jewish faith with its Mosaic laws at the time of this writing is still going on. They're still offering sacrifices. They're still a temple. And so faithful Jews are following that Mosaic law the best of their abilities which falls far short of what is required of them. And then we have Christ who has appeared and died and rose again and paid the penalty for our sins. And the church is beginning to grow. And so we have people who are coming from Judaism and some of them are accepting Jesus as the Messiah, but most of them are not. Most of them are not. And so I think the main one of the main thrusts of this scripture is to, the, is to those Jews, and he's saying basically, your sin is the sin of denying Christ for who he is. I don't think the sinning deliberately refers to our everyday sins. Now, we should never sin deliberately, right? But every sin we commit is almost always deliberate. <laughs> if we gossip, it is almost always deliberate. I don't think he's talking about that. I think he's talking about a sin of denying Jesus Christ for who he is. It's a sin of unbelief. And I say that because the following statement says that 
if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Well, what is the knowledge of the truth? That is who Jesus Christ is, that he is Lord and Savior. And it says that if they deny that, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Uh, now, at first reading, this sounds very uh, threatening to us who are Christians, but it's really, I don't think it's directed to us. It simply means that if you come and you hear about Jesus Christ, and if you turn back to Judaism, there's no longer a sacrifice for there that will do any, of any benefit for you. The only place there's an acceptable sacrifice is to run to Jesus, to go to Jesus. <clears throat> and so I, ho I hope that is clear. It doesn't mean that Jesus' sin doesn't cover all of our sin. It certainly does, right? It covers all of our sin. For those of us who believe and trust in him, it covers all of our sin. But it means that if you pass up this opportunity to put your faith and trust in Christ, there's nothing else you can go back to and find any kind of acceptable sacrifice for sin. The Old Testament law has passed away, right? When it came to the time of Jesus and the new kingdom came, that law has passed away at the day of Pentecost. And so that is who this, day, this warning is for. It's specifically for the one who is tempted to go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. It's not sins that we commit as Christians, but it's a specific sin of a lack of faith in Christ resulting in returning to the law, into the Old Testament law, which has no effect. So what is this danger? Well, if we heed this, the danger passes, right? If we don't heed this message, then the danger exists. This is the danger of rejecting Christ. There's no longer a sacrifice for sin. You can't go anywhere else, right? You can't gin up your own salvation by your good works. You can't return to the Old Testament law. You can't trust in anyone else. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no more sacrifice for sin if you turn away from Jesus. He's the only source of anyone who's paid for our sin. And if we reject that, then there's judgment and wrath. Look at verse 27. But a fearful expectation of judgment and fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Folks, this is, this is serious language. This is a serious message. And it should cause us to have compassion and want to reach out to our neighbors with the gospel of Jesus Christ, to reach out to our family. Not only is there the danger of judgment, but it's a fiery judgment, which is not going to be pleasant at all. You might ask, as a church, do we believe in the doctrine of hell? It's, it appears that many people do not preach about hell, and it's probably, probably not something that I would probably do regularly is preach solely on the topic of hell. But the doctrine of hell, we need to understand that there is a hell, a literal place of fire that will be the punishment for people sinning against the holy God. Not my words, it's words of the writer of the book of Hebrews, it's also the words of Jesus. Jesus wrote more or said more about 
hell than any other person in the Bible. And so this punishment is real. And according to this, to reject Jesus is a worse punishment than what you would re receive under the law of Moses. So under the law of Moses, two or three people can come to you with a charge against a specific sin, such as murder, and you could be put to death for that. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, if there's that strict of a punishment for people under the law, how much more will it be if you reject his very own son? Judgment will be more severe under the new covenant than under the Mosaic law. Now, it's not the new covenant members who come under judgment. Obviously, they have eternal life. But those who hear the good news of Jesus Christ will, will, will suffer a more severe punishment than they would have under the Mosaic law. He gives several reasons for why that is so. Because it tramples God's son underfoot. It's as though we're trampling on the good name of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to reject this message of Christ. He also says that it profanes or desecrates the blood of Christ. I know unbelievers probably are mystified when we talk about the blood, but to us the blood is something very dear. There's power in the blood, right? Amen. The blood of Jesus Christ. But for someone to say, that's not sufficient. Ah, Jesus, he died on the cross. You know, he rose from the dead. He spilled his blood. But basically by rejecting him, they're saying that's not sufficient. Is profaning or bringing to, really means to make profanity out of God's blood, out of Jesus' blood. It desecrates the blood of Christ. That's why, one reason why this judgment is so severe. It tramples God's son underfoot. It profanes or desecrates the blood of Christ. And it outrages the Holy Spirit. It outrages the Holy Spirit. We could get into the subject of the unforgivable sin, but surely this is the unforgivable sin. People question, what is the unforgivable sin? How can that occur? The unfor unfor only unforgivable sin is unbelief in Christ, right? Amen. That's, that's what it is. It's unbelief in Christ. All other sins can be forgiven, and we should be thankful for that. Our God is the living God. He is the judge. We know him. We know who he is. We know what he can do. We've seen him judge the earth before. We've seen him judge the earth during the flood where he killed all people except for eight people who resided on the ark. He killed all of Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea whenever they, whenever they were chasing after the Israelites. He will judge his people. There's no doubt about that. He will judge his people. And it is truly a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of the living God without Jesus Christ. Sometimes I just want to say, whoa, whoa, is our nation. You know, and we have to look at ourselves first, examine ourselves first. But woe is our nation. We have had so many opportunities. We have been blessed by God so much. We have been, had a great foundation, which regardless of what people say, America had its founding fathers based on people who wanted religious liberty to come here 
and practice the Christian religion. And the basis of our laws, the executive branch, the judicial branch, and the Congress come directly from the Bible. And we have squandered it as a nation. And so woe is us for traveling so far away from God. And uh, my prayer is for our nation is that we would repent, that there would come a great revival. Folks, God can do this. He can do it. I know sometimes it's tempting just to say, ah, Jesus is coming back pretty soon. We don't have to worry too much about it. But we don't know that. We don't know if he's coming back the next seven years or the next 7,000 years. We really don't know that for sure. And my prayer until he comes back is that our nation would return to its Christian roots and be the people that God wants us to be. The good news. The good news, starting with verse 32 down to 39, is an encouragement to those who are true believers. It seems as though he's changing thought patterns here. He's been talking about those, those who drift away from the faith. Now he's talking about we. But he lists some things here that are very encouraging because they are signs of a true faith in God. Look at verse 32. But recall the former days after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. The people that he is writing to now, the people he is addressing to now, it's as though he's changed. He's addressing those who are faithful, who have actually heard the word of God. They were enlightened by it. And it's evident because they have struggled with sufferings for the sake of Christ. They didn't give up, did they? They didn't turn back. They didn't drift away. They, they continued on and they endured through struggles. They also, verse 33, they were standing with others who were suffering. In other words, their brothers and sisters were in Christ were suffering. Some of them were being thrown in jail, and they were standing right next to him, even though associating with them might have had them thrown in jail. They were holding up, and they were dealing with their property being taken away. And they did so because their confidence was in an eternal destination. It wasn't in this earth, but it was in their eternal destination. Folks, this almost sounds like it applied to us today or a few years down the road maybe. We will need to endure. We will need to stand with others who suffer. We will need to hold up even while our property may be taken away and our freedoms cast aside. He says, verse 35, he says, don't throw away your confidence which has a great reward. We have need of endurance. Look at verse 36, another phenomenal verse. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. We need to endure. Eternal security doesn't mean making a decision 30 years ago and never having your life changed and then believing that you go to, go to, go to heaven. Now, I'm not the one who judges that, but according to God's word, we need to endure in the faith. And that might look different for different people, right? There are people who cannot want to be here, but cannot be here today because of physical problems, physical health problems. 
But we have a need to endure because we have a great reward and Christ will be coming back soon. How soon? I don't know. And so we are to live by faith and not to shrink back. Look at verse 39 again. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those that who have faith and preserve their souls. Drawing back displeases God. There's no doubt about that. To, to change your mind about Christ and to back away from him or to decide, well, I'm not going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to accept him as Savior, but uh, I'm not really committed to following him as Lord is a dangerous place to be in. Drawing back away displeases God. It's faith that preserves the soul. So we need to be people of great faith. Amen. You might say, well, how, how can I be a great person of great faith? Just remember, faith is a gift from God. Ask for more faith. That's what the disciples did, remember? The disciples asked Jesus, increase our faith, and he will do that. Step out in faith. When you step out in faith, you're trusting in God to accomplish whatever you're stepping out for and when you see him be faithful to do that, your faith will grow. Be in community with the rest of our church, whether it's here on Sunday morning or in Bible studies or just having get-togethers or recreational activities. All of those have a purpose of keeping us in the body of Christ, helping one another's faith to grow. And so what started out as a dire message, I say, is a message of great hope. If we keep our focus on Christ, he is better than everything. He is superior. He is worth giving our whole life to. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time. And thank you for your spirit, which I believe has been here. And I thank you for these kind people who have listened to the word of God being preached. And now I pray that your Holy Spirit would do his work and that he would convict us where we need to be convicted, where we have half-heartedly served you. We pray that you would strengthen us to be able to love you above all else and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Help us to be your people. Help us to be the people of God who will make a difference in this world and will glorify you in all that we do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.